All right, 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. The whole theme of 1 Kings is covenants and character. We're going to be looking at God's covenant with Israel, God's covenant with David, and we're going to be looking at a lot of characters. And as we come to chapter 2 in 1 Kings, we've already looked at the disaster that could have been in chapter 1 and how that disaster was averted because David stepped up. He stepped up to keep his promise about who would reign after him. And so, when we arrive at chapter 2, Solomon is king. Adonijah, his brother, who tried to take the throne, is still alive, but he's on thin ice. And David, at this point, does not have much time left to live. So, with chapter 2, we will see David's final days and the complete transition uh, from David's story now to Solomon's story. And this transition begins with a much-needed father-son talk where David gives Solomon a charge in the areas of his personal life, his spiritual life, and his political life. So chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies. So David, it mentions here, the days of David drew near that he should die. The Bible doesn't tell us how long uh, Solomon co-reigned with David. This was a common practice for kings in that region of the world during this time period. We, in fact, will see numerous kings of Judah who end up co-reigning with their sons for a period of time. But here, David is now coming to the end of his part of that reign, and so it says that days drew near that he should die, and so he charged Solomon his son. The word charge there, it means to state with authority what some others must do. Israel's history is filled with famous final charges when authority is transferred from one leader to another. Moses, of course, charged Joshua. And then Joshua, at the end of his life, charges the leaders of the tribes of Israel. And then Samuel, when he's gotten old and is going to transfer leadership to Saul, he charges the leaders of the tribes. And now we see King David charging his son Solomon as authority is transferring to him. For context, it mentions here his son, And Solomon is at the age when you kind of have that father-son talk. Solomon is at the most, you know, 22, 23 years old. He's very likely right at 20 years old at this point. So this is kind of that true father-son talk about becoming a man. Solomon might be co-regent with his dad, but David is the greater, and his words carry force, and so Solomon would be a fool to ignore them. Now, this is interesting because the New Testament is full of charges for us. We are kings and priests unto God. Revelation 1-7, we just sang that, but we do well to heed these charges also. So, verse 2, David tells him, I go the way of all the earth. I'm taking the journey that every person on earth must take. I remember my youth leader in high school used to tell us a story about when she served at a hospital. She was working at a hospital as a nurse, and and there was a very wealthy gentleman who was there, and he was being treated, and he had had major surgery, and afterwards he was recuperating, and so she was kind of his main nurse during that time. And he was progressing in his rehab pretty well, and eventually came to a point where they had kind of said, hey, we're going to release you back out on this date. And so she asked him as his days were closing, said, so what are you going to do next? 
And he said, well, he said, I think I'm going to retire. <laughs> he said, I've, I've had a, a long life. And he said, you know, I've, I've worked really hard. And obviously now I'm coming to the end of it. And so I'm going to, I'm going to retire and I'm going to kind of move forward and uh, enjoy some of the things that I've worked so hard to be able to do. And she said, okay, well, what are you going to do after that? And he said, well, you know, I guess me and my wife, after we go and see the world and do some other things, you know, I guess we'll maybe spend some time with the grandkids and the kids and, and, you know, travel with them and see them and spend time with them. And she's like, that's wonderful. And what are you going to do after that? And he said, well, I guess, I guess we'll probably have to, you know, go to a nursing home or something. And, and he said, okay. And what are you going to do after that? And he said, well, I, I guess I'll die. And she said, what are you going to do after that? And he had no answer. He had never planned for that. He planned for everything else. But if the Lord tarries, every single person in this room will take the journey that David faced, right? And David speaks here as if he's prepared for the journey. I'm taking the journey that every person on earth must take. Are you and I prepared for that journey? David, he says this to Solomon, not because Solomon doesn't know. He's not like, you know, this is a shock to Solomon. He's like, Dad, you're dying. He says this to Solomon to make a point. Son, you're going to face this day someday too. Will you live in such a way that you are well prepared to die? Will you live your life in light of the fact that your life on earth will end and it will begin elsewhere? Will you live knowing you'll answer to the Lord when you pass through death's door? These are important questions to ask ourselves. And we don't usually like to ask them. But do we? Have we decided about how to be prepared for that time? Or do we live as if we will never take that journey? Well, the right answers to the questions that we would ask during that time are found in David's charge to Solomon. And so he starts off first with some personal life advice, a charge for how he conducts himself as a man. He says, therefore, since I'm going the way of the earth, you've got to step up and be king. Therefore, be thou strong and show yourself a man. So he's got two pieces of advice, two charges for him in his personal life. He says, because I'm dying someday and you're going to face death too someday. He says, number one, be strong. The word here means to grow firm or harden, to, be, to grow firm or hardened. It means to be in a fastened position to another object by force. It's like when you drop an anchor. You purposely drop an anchor to make sure this is where we're going to be. David had given Solomon some very specific tasks to carry out after he was gone. And Solomon understood what the job required. But David tells him now, he goes, son, I'm not going to be here anymore. It's time for you to fasten yourself to those principles I taught you because there's too much at stake for you to do it your own way. There's too much at stake for you to go down your own path. Drop the anchor and get the job done. Stick to the plan. And then secondly, he says, show yourself a man. It's kind of a complicated way to just simply say, it's time to be a man. It's time to grow up, son. David grew up working with his hands. He was a shepherd. He had told stories about how he'd wrestled with dangerous beasts to keep the sheep safe. I'm not sure if Solomon ever saw a lion, let alone had protected sheep from one. David was a man of war. 
David had lived as a fugitive in the hills and caves. Solomon had likely never worked a day with his hands. He certainly had never fought in a war, and he had been in a lofty position from birth. And so David reminds Solomon, he goes, you might know the plan, but you can't remain who you've been if you're going to carry it out. It is time to grow up, son, and it is time to be who God created you to be. God created you to be a man. Now, I realize, and I don't say this mockingly, but I realize that the big question these days is what a woman is. But I would like to address the question of what is a man? What is a man from the Bible's perspective? Well, in John 19.5, Pilate says something very interesting. Jesus, after he had been scourged, was brought out. And in John 19.5, it says, Then Jesus came forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. Paul says it another way in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says this, He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. What an interesting way to phrase that. Like, Pilate could have said, behold, this man. Behold, the criminal. He could have said, behold, a man, because part of the reason he had to say he was a man is because Jesus had been whipped and beaten so badly, he probably couldn't tell he was a human being. He could have said, Paul could have said, there is one God, one mediator between God and man, and it's a man, Christ Jesus. But he didn't say that, did he? Pilate said, behold, the man. And then later on, Paul says, there is one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. A man is someone who follows the example of the man. A man was designed by God to lay down his life for others. That's what both those verses are describing. That's what a man is. I don't care how capable a woman or a child is, but the reason the phrase women and children first exists is because that's what men were created to do. We were created to lay down our lives. I don't get the door for my wife or address a woman by the honored title of miss or kneel down on a floor of children to get on eye level with them because I'm demeaning them or because they're incompetent or because they're incapable. The truth is a woman or a child can die just as easily as a man and a woman or a child can excel at many things just as easily as a man. I do those things because I was created to lay down my life for others. And anything less makes me less than what God designed me to be. Now, some would respond to my statement by saying, well, I don't want to be called miss, or I don't want someone to get the door from me. You demean me or you declare my inferiority when you do that. To which I would ask the question, does the Savior dying for your sins demean you? Or does it elevate you? I know what the Bible teaches. Does Pilate coming out and addressing the bloody, lacerated, beaten body of Jesus for you and introduce him as the man demean you somehow? 
And you see, that's the problem with many who refuse Christ. I don't need a Savior. Jesus isn't the man. I'm the man. I don't need anyone to be the man for me. So if we want to define biblically what a man is, whether you're a young man or an old man tonight, whether you're a married man or a single man, you were created to lay down your life for others. You were created to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow the man who laid down his life for you. That's what a man is. And if you haven't embraced your purpose of self-sacrifice, I don't care how old you are, I don't care how much you've accomplished, but you haven't become a man. Not like David charges Solomon here. And so if you haven't embraced that yet, it's time to grow up, just like Solomon needed to. Well, after David gives him this personal life charge to fasten his anchor to the task at hand and to grow up and be a man, he then gives him a spiritual life charge. He says in verse 3, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes and His commandments and His judgments and His testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and whithersoever you turn yourself. His first spiritual life charge is this, pay close attention to your relationship with God. That's what the word keep means. It means to be on your guard, to be careful about something. And I love here, he says, it's the charge of the Lord your God, not the charge of the Lord my God. Solomon, you have your own relationship with God. You know what God wants you to do, so pay close attention to those things so that you do them. And what were the things that he knew he needed to do? What were the things that he needed to pay close attention to? Number one, he says, to walk in his ways, to conduct your life in God's ways. Now, what are God's ways? Well, the Bible uses the phrase God's ways to refer to God's behaviors. God has instructed you to behave like He does, Solomon. Be careful to follow the Lord's example. And those are good words for us too, don't you think? How would the Lord handle this situation? That's great advice. It's a great charge for us as well this evening to be careful to follow the Lord's example. And then secondly, he puts four other things together, and not only behave the way the Lord behaves, but to keep or pay close attention to His statutes, His commandments, His judgments, and His testimonies. These four words refer to, the statutes refer to God's standards, His commandments refer to God's will, His judgments refer to God's heart, and His testimony refers to God's revelation as found in the Scripture. Now, we don't have enough time to list what all that is tonight because that's like the first five books of Moses. But God did give some very clear instructions for kings in Deuteronomy, and I think this is probably more specifically what David has in mind. In Deuteronomy 17, God predicts that Israel will want a king, and when they get one, He says, this is how I want your king to be. Deuteronomy 17, 14, he says, when you are come into the land which the Lord your God gives you and shall possess it and shall dwell therein and say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations that are about me, you shall in any wise set him king over you whom the Lord your God shall choose. You don't get to pick. I get to pick. One from among your brethren shall you set king over you. You may not set a stranger, a foreigner over you, which is not your, your brother, your kinsman. But then he gives the rules for the king. 
We start off first with the negative. Don't do this. He shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord God has said unto you, you shall not henceforth return any more that way. Number three, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart does not turn away. Neither shall, number four, he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Now from the positive, this is what he should do. And it shall be when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law and a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. In other words, he's got to write his own copy of the first five books of the Old Testament. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart not be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he does not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Almost the end there are the exact words that David says here to Solomon. He says, Solomon, son, do what God has commanded in that section for kings. Pay close attention, not just to God's behaviors, but what God says in His Word. That you may prosper. The word there means to be skilled or successful in all that you do and whithersoever you turn yourself. In other words, whatever direction you decide to go, that God will cause it to be successful. He says, I want you to succeed, son. I want you to rule well. I want you to succeed in all you set out to do, but that will not happen if you don't do things God's way. So pay close attention to everything He has laid out in His Word. It's a great question to ask us in regards to our responsibilities before the Lord. You know, have you and I made the commitment to do this as a spouse? God lays out pretty clear, you know, commands if you're married, right? Like if you're a husband or your wife, He lays out some clear things. Have you committed to paying close attention to what God says in those areas? Have you made that commitment as a parent? God has some very specific things to say to parents. If you're a son or a daughter, God has things to say about that. If you're a business owner or a manager or an employee, or have you made the commitment to do this in your ministry? Are you paying close attention to what God says about those areas of responsibility? This is good advice for all of us. However, this specific charge does have unique provisions for David's descendants. Verse 4, not only does he say, pay close attention to your relationship with God, but he says, son, stay loyal to the Lord. Verse 4, that the Lord may continue His Word. The word continue there means to raise up or confirm His Word, which He spoke concerning me, saying, if your children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail you, said He, a man on the throne of Israel. Here David is quoting, or he's referencing what God said to him through the prophet Nathan when he wanted to build God a temple, and the Lord sent Nathan to him to say, well, you're not going to build me a house, but I'll give you some, some good news. I'm going to build you a house. And in Sam, 2 Samuel 7, 12, he said, and when your days be fulfilled and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house 
and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. There were two very particular promises in that word from Nathan to David. First, he says, your son Solomon, he will build the temple that you desire to construct. And then second, I will establish his throne forever if he walks with me. David here, he's telling him, he's saying, son, God made me a promise. It's an awesome promise. But as I'm going my way and you're going to step in, you need to be faithful so that we'll see the end of that. Solomon will not succeed in the temple project. He will not succeed in passing on a healthy kingdom to his descendants if he does not put his relationship with the Lord first. And so he says, do this, that the Lord may continue his word, that he might establish and raise up what he said he would do. And he told us that if your children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart, and truth just means with faithfulness, with firmness, with loyalty, with all their heart and with all their soul, then it'll happen. Now, Solomon succeeded in the first task, right? Building the temple. That was glorious, right? I mean, you read through the whole story of Solomon building the temple, and it's just like, man, this guy's just on fire. Things are great. But Solomon failed in the second task. He did not pass on a healthy kingdom to his descendants. And so the kingdom split very shortly after his death, which means that Solomon didn't pay close attention to following God's example. It means Solomon didn't remain loyal to the Lord. He didn't live for God with all his heart and with all his soul. In Matthew 22, 37 and 38, Jesus, when he was asked what the greatest commandment is, he said the same thing to us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. I referenced it this morning, but, and I referenced it, I think, the very first sermon I ever preached here. David in Psalm 27, 4, he said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I might behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. One thing, one thing he said I want. I want to know the Lord. Luke 10, 41 and 42. Mary, Martha's all upset because Mary's not helping her. And she comes out and says, Jesus, tell my sister to help. And Jesus turns to Martha and he says, Martha, you got a lot in your mind. You got a lot that's troubling you. But Mary, look, she's chosen something better than that. She's sitting at my feet and I'm not going to take that away from her. One thing, he said, Martha, is necessary. Same phrase David used. One thing have I desired of the Lord, to know Him, to fellowship with Him, to know Him better, to be close to Him. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, and He goes, I'm not taking this away from her, not for any task that's in front of you. One thing is necessary, Martha, and Mary's chosen the better part. And then, of course, Philippians 3, 13 and 14 Paul the Apostle, he says, I don't live as though I was, I've already apprehended that for which I was apprehended for. He says, I haven't arrived yet. He says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing, there's that phrase again, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are in front, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What is that? He tells us in verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, 
being made conformable unto his death. I just want to know my God. David failed many, many times, but his heart remained loyal to the Lord. And so the Lord promised David, he says, your son might mess up, but I'll discipline him when he strays just like I disciplined you. And the purpose of discipline is to bring us to a place of repentance and restoration. The purpose of discipline is not punishment. The purpose of discipline is to bring us to a place of repentance and then subsequent restoration. God did not tell David that he required Solomon to be perfect, but God did want Solomon's loyalty. And so David tells him, he says, listen, pay close attention to your relationship with God and stay loyal to the Lord. Keep your heart loyal, Solomon. If there's any legacy that David is seeking to pass on to his son, it is that. God will bless you if you remain loyal from the heart to him, if you remain loyal from the soul. Keep your heart loyal, Solomon. David's fatherly and spiritual advice now gives way to David's experience as a leader. And so in the next verses, they appear kind of brutal at times, but they are very practical warnings for an inexperienced king. In verse 5, David begins giving political charges to Solomon. He gives him political advice, and he starts out with advice concerning Joab. He says in verse 5, moreover, you know also what Joab the son of Zariah did to me, and what he did to the two captains of the host of Israel, unto Abner the son of Ner, and unto Amasa the son of Jether, whom he slew and shed the blood of war in peace and put the blood of war upon his girdle that was upon his loins and in his shoes that were on his feet. Do therefore according to your wisdom and let not his whore head go down to the grave in peace. Solomon wasn't alive for the first transgression that David mentions here. When Abner was killed, Solomon was, wasn't even a twinkle in his father's eye. But Solomon was a teenager when Joab killed Amasa. Amasa was Absalom's general. And so Solomon had, was in the party that was fleeing from Jerusalem when Absalom was coming to kill all of them. So he surely was old enough to comprehend Joab's murder of Amasa after David appointed Amasa, after Absalom was killed. Well, we'll get to that later. But he was alive for that. And yet, David, when he says, moreover, you know, he words this in a way that makes me guess that this is more than just Solomon hearing about it from other people. He words it in a way that makes me guess that David's anger over both of these wicked actions came up frequently in family settings. I imagine when Joab, because Joab's David's nephew, came over for a birthday party, you'd probably some tension there probably some, you know, stress at times. They probably got into arguments at times. There are probably times afterwards that Solomon heard David complaining about Joab. So he killed that guy 20 years ago. Because if they weren't a cloud hanging over Joab's career, they were a cloud that David hung over Joab. And David says something interesting here. He says, you know what Joab did to me. What did Joab do to David. It's possible that David means that he saw Joab's murder of Abner and Amasa as personal wrongs uh, done to him because he did them in disobedience to David. Uh, those murders did put David's reign under a cloud because many thought that David sanctioned Joab's murders of those men. But I think it's more likely that David is referring to two other things that Joab did. 
Number one, when Joab disobeyed David's direct order to not kill his son Absalom. And probably number two, most importantly, when Joab went against David's plan to make Solomon king and he secretly backed Adonijah. While those two actions were not punishable by death under the law of Moses, the first two actions were, which is why David highlights those here. He says, and what he did to the two captains of the host of Israel, first unto Abner the son of Ner. Well, what did Joab do to the Abner the son of Ner? And, and I do say that this, this kind of section of Scripture kind of reads, you ever well, like have a favorite TV series and then they have like a, a flashback episode? kind of where they go back and they cover scenes from the past and kind of you reminisce about favorite episodes or things like that. This chapter kind of reads like that as David's kind of flashing back to these events that occur in his life. He mentions that he killed Abner the son of Ner in a time when it wasn't a time of war but a time of peace. What was that? Well, 2 Samuel 3, 26 and 27, you can read about it in your own time, but Joab didn't like that David made a treaty with Abner to bring the other ten tribes to accept David as king when the first civil war started, when Judah proclaimed David as king, but the other ten tribes said, no, Ishbosheth, the last surviving son of Saul, is going to be our king. And Abner was pretty much the instigator of that. Well, when Abner made peace with David, Joab didn't trust him. Joab thought Abner was a liar, and he felt like that the murder was justified as necessary to protect David from David's own kind heart. And so he basically, without David knowing, said, hey, Abner sent a message to him. He said, David, David wants to talk to you again, wants to hammer out some more details about the peace treaty. And so when Joab walked him through the gates of the city, he pulled him aside like they were going to have a private conversation and gave him the, uh, the single-handed hand- handshake instead of the, the five-fingered, the single-fingered, the just one finger right through the heart, killed him in cold blood. Then he also mentions how he killed Amasa, the son of Jether. You can find that story in 2 Samuel chapter 20, verses 4 through 10. David had ordered Amasa to go muster the army because someone else had rebelled against him. But Amasa had kind of taken his sweet time mustering the army, and Joab believed that Amasa had done it because he had turned against David. Since he had been Absalom's general, surely he couldn't be loyal to David. And so as Amasa walked up with his army, Joab was there with all his soldiers, and he went to go greet him. He said, how are you doing, brother? And he reached for him with this hand and with the other hand, gutted him. Again, Joab murdered him in cold blood. And then Joab usurped the position of general that David had given to Amasa. And when the people were staring around going, this is wrong, one of the Joab's men, clearly he had prepared them, someone to do this. He said, if you, don't, if you love David, then you'll follow Joab. And so Joab kind of thrust himself back into a position that David had removed him from because of his crimes. The reality is this, even if Joab thought someone presented a real threat to David, he didn't have the right to just murder those people whenever he deemed necessary. God had set up laws and judges for that sort of thing. But Joab made himself the law and thus opposed God's law and committed two capital crimes. And that's what David explains to Solomon here. He goes, son, you may have heard these things. You might have even heard me complain about your uncle. He goes, but the truth is he shed the blood of war in a time of peace. Blood is necessary to be spilled in war, but both of these killings were done to people David wasn't at war with. 
and that makes them murder. And so as a result, he says, not only did he commit murder in a time of peace, but he also put the blood of war upon his girdle that was upon his loins and in his shoes that were on his feet. The girdle, the girdle is like a sash. Back then, you wore robes, and so I don't know if you've ever tried to do work in a robe. I've not tried, but if you ever tried, you'd probably find it to be a little bit encumbering. I tend to go out and work in things that aren't going to get caught on stuff because I've got work to do, and it was so back then. When a soldier went, he would have a sash, and you'd take the robe or the garments, and you'd tuck it in there, and there, you wouldn't have the long robe. Your legs would be free. People also didn't wear shoes like that back then, but soldiers did because you can't fight in bare feet. You can't fight in just sandals. You need good, solid shoes. So these are two articles of clothing that are particular to soldiers. So not only, David says, has Job committed capital crimes, but he has soiled his office as a soldier and the general of my army. He has covered that office with shame and disgrace, and therefore he is unfit to continue in this role. Now that's interesting because David's turning over a kingdom where Joab's still general. So there's a bit of a confession here from David. Son, I should have executed my nephew myself for his crimes. But as much as he frustrated me, I didn't do it. And so because I didn't deal with him, my Joab problem is now your Joab problem. You ever get that? They get promoted into a situation and then someone sits down with you and it's like, I probably should have done this, but I'm out of here, so now it's your job. So that's why I say there's a bit of a confession here from David. Joab did things he should have been executed for, and I didn't do it. So here's my advice on how to solve it. Verse 6, do therefore, he first informs him of the situation, and reminds him, and then gives him more details. But now he says, do therefore according to your wisdom, and do not let his whore head go down to the grave in peace. I like having an old King James because you're not going to ever hear someone called the whorehead. It just means the gray head, the advanced age head. It's a term of respect for someone who has grown old. And the reason David uses it here is because he's saying, Joab is a man who shouldn't have grown old. Joab's a man who should have been executed. And so he tells him, don't let him go to the grave as an innocent man. He starts off by saying, don't invent a pretext to execute him, though. He says, do therefore according to your wisdom. Don't just invent a pretext to get rid of him. That would make you no better than the heathen kings. I've taught you how to be a king, and so when he steps over the line again, deal with him. And by giving this advice, David lets Solomon know something very important. He doesn't believe Joab can keep himself from crossing the line. He'll do it again. And when he does, be better than me. Be better than me. David has a good reason for this opinion about Joab. Joab could never keep himself from crossing the line. He did it multiple times during David's reign. And so he says, watch him, Solomon. And when you have justification, deal with him because it's the right thing to do. Now, in contrast to this, Make sure you look for opportunities to honor another group of people. Verse 7, but show kindness unto the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be of those that eat at your table, for so they came to me when I fled because of Absalom, your brother. Again, we get a bit of a, another flashback here. 
Barzillai was a wealthy old man, an older man. He was a mayor of a town on the other side of the Jordan River uh, when Absalom executed his coup against David. And when David had fled over the other side of the river to get away from Absalom, he had nothing. He and his group, it was probably about anywhere from 500 to 700 people, they didn't have anything. They certainly didn't have supplies to form a counter-government away from Jerusalem. But because of Barzillai's practical support, if you read 2 Samuel 17, 27 through 29, it mentions that he brought supplies, he brought bedding, he brought the ability for David to kind of reestablish some type of a, a center of operation so that he could figure out how he's going to deal with Absalom so that David could fight against Absalom again. Barzillai was one of the men responsible to supply those who remained loyal to David during that war. And when David won that conflict, he offered Barzillai a place in his cabinet. But Barzillai said, I'm too old for that kind of stuff. I'm too old for the, all the energy of politicking and kissing babies and all that kind of stuff. It's required going to parties and stuff. I, I'm too old for this. And so David said, well, let me, let me do something special for your son. And Barzillai said, okay. And so David gave his son an honored position at his table. David now urges Solomon to keep that promise. Don't push this guy out. I know you maybe not know him very well. I know that you weren't around when their dad treated me really good and was crucial to the fact that I'm still king. Make sure you honor my promise. You can trust that family. You can't trust Joab, but you can trust this family. Treat them well. Show kindness to them. The word show kindness, it means to display loyal love, unwavering devotion, the same love that God has for us. Give it to them. Treat them well. And then, almost as if David might have forgotten, he offers a final piece of advice concerning another thorn in his side. Verse 8, he says, and behold, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite of Bahurim, which cursed me with a grievous curse in the day when I went to Mahanaim. But he came down to meet me at Jordan, and I swear to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, hold him not guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do unto him. But his forehead bring you down to the grave with blood, with, by the way, not old age. Execute him. The word behold here is where you get, oh, and by the way, that's what it means. It's this idea that David was kind of going, is there anything else I need to talk to Solomon about? And it's almost like discussing the sons of Barzillai. He's like, ah, I need to tell you about this turkey. He says, you have with you, which means you have in the neighborhood. He lived further away during my reign, but now he's close. You have with you in the neighborhood, he says, Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite of Bahurim. Who is Shimei? Well, Shimei was one of Saul's relatives who as David was fleeing from Absalom in the middle of the night, he came out and he's on the hills and he's cursing David and throwing rocks at him and his men. 2 Samuel 16, 5 through 8, you can read about that there. Well, you don't do that type of thing to a king and get away with it. One of David's soldiers said to him, he goes, you want me to go and take that guy's head off so he can't throw rocks at us anymore? But David chose not to send his soldiers to deal with him. David believed that that was all part of his discipline for his sin with Bathsheba. But just as God can use wicked people as his instrument of discipline, those people that God uses can go beyond what God sent them to do. 
And David said, it's not just that he cursed me. He cursed me with a grievous curse. The word grievous here, it means that which causes emotional pain, distress, or anxiety. It's almost like David is saying, Solomon, he goes, if that guy came out, that turkey came out, and he said, you're a bad king, I'd have probably been like, you're right. You deserve to be in this spot. He'd probably go, you're right. The problem wasn't that, assuming I came out to just curse David because he'd made, had failures or made mistakes. David came out and said, God's doing this to you because you murdered Saul and his family. Can you imagine how painful that must have been for David? Yeah, you know you're in this mess because of your own sin, and God told you that those would rise up from your own house that would seek to kill you. But now you're out here, and this guy accuses you of doing something you didn't do? I can't imagine how painful it must have been for David. He'd never done anything wrong to Saul. He had never done anything wrong to anyone in Saul's family. And yet Saul repeatedly betrayed David. Saul soiled David's name. So what David is telling Solomon here is, has that happened? I thought to myself, while Jimmy I say in these things, I deserve to be cursed, but not for the things this guy says. Because all I ever did was love your relative. And all I did was ever love his family. Well, after David defeated Absalom, Shimei came begging to be spared and for David to forget what he said. He had those two requests in 2 Samuel 19, 18 through 23. Again, you can, all these flashbacks to previous Scripture. You go back to 2 Samuel 19, 18 through 23, and it says that you know, Shimei is one of the first people to greet David as he gets on the boat and goes over the Jordan. And he falls down before and he goes, please, please, he says, spare my life. I know what I deserve for what I did to you and what I said to you. Please spare my life. That was his first request. David said he would. His second request is forget everything I said. And David never promised to do that. He spared him, but he didn't promise to forget what Shimei said. And while loyalists to Saul's family hadn't been a threat to David for quite a while at this point in his life, David knew there were still some out there who could create trouble for Solomon and Shimei was the worse. And so because Shimei should have been punished for his false accusation, Solomon needs to keep an eye out for an opportunity to deal with this guy too. Don't hold him guiltless, he says. He goes, even though I didn't execute him, don't consider him an innocent man. I didn't want to tarnish God's grace in returning me to the throne by executing someone who did me wrong. So I decided to show mercy to someone else in the same way God showed mercy to me. But you aren't in that situation, Solomon. If he steps out of line, you make sure that you deal with him because he is not an innocent man. You're a skilled man. You're a wise man. You know how to be king. I've trained you how to be a good king. So don't let him die the death of an innocent man. Watch for him to cross the line again. Like Joab, David does not believe that Shimei can keep himself from crossing the line. He's convinced he'll step out of bounds in the future because I don't believe he's truly a loyal subject. Don't trust him, Solomon. And if you can find a reason to deal with him, do so. Now, sometimes you hear people talk about these verses, and even sometimes I've heard pastors teach these verses like it's a mafia family deathbed scene. Off Johnny and off so-and-so and make sure you kill so-and-so. I don't think David fits that picture here. It's easy to see David as vindictive in these verses, but David's 
Chief concern that he repeats to Solomon is these are not innocent men. His concern is that wrong was done and he didn't deal with it like he should have. He says it's not right that these individuals walk the earth and everyone thinks they're great people, everyone thinks they're innocent members of society when I should have prosecuted them. And so his advice is don't give them any more chances. If they step out of line again, prosecute them. It's the right thing to do. Now, as we kind of wrap that section of David's speech up, it does show a fascinating difference between the Old and the New Covenants, doesn't it? There wasn't really a good way to get out of that knife's edge existence under the law, was there? I mean, if you're Shimei and you're Joab, where is any type of innocence again found? It isn't. No amount of good can ever make up for our past evils, right? We all deserve judgment, and the truth is God would be just to give it to us at any moment. He doesn't even owe us one more chance. But the new covenant is better, isn't it? It's based not on my faithfulness, but Christ's faithfulness. And guess what? Jesus never violated God's standards. And so by faith, I am now in Christ, and as such, I don't walk on a knife's edge with God. I don't relate to God based on my ability to always do the right thing, but I relate to God based on the fact that Christ already did all the right things. And He paid the price on the cross for the fact that I did not. And so even if I've had great failures in the past, I can draw near to the Lord, and I can have use in the king's court, even though I don't deserve it. Well, verses 10 through 12, we'll read these quickly and then close out. So David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. The fact that David reigned for 40 years, we know he started his reign at the age of 30, so that means David died at the ripe old age of 70. And so at verse 11, we say goodbye to the man who has dominated most of the pages of Scripture we've been studying for the last two years at our church on Sunday nights. We have gone from 1 Samuel 16 when we met David all the way to our chapter tonight. That's David's story. It won't be the last we see about David. We'll cover him again a bit in 1 Chronicles and then We'll see him quite a bit in the book of Psalms. But David was one of the most influential people in Israel's history, shaping much of the society that we're going to read about for the next four books that we study and even beyond into the prophets. But most importantly, David was the man after God's own heart. And you know what's interesting? Remember, we're studying covenants and character. David, we learn from him how to be a man after God's own heart. His loyalty to God, as he's encouraging Solomon, charging Solomon to remain loyal to God, we should, we should desire to emulate that. But we also learn about God's covenant to David, because even though Solomon failed, God kept His promise to David, because one of David's descendants did not fail, and his kingdom will have no end. So God kept His promise. But for now… Solomon's doing well, and so after David's death, God strengthens his reign. Then sat, verse 12, it says, then sat Solomon upon the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. Solomon now reigns alone, 
and his kingdom is solidified. First Chronicles 29, 22, it mentions that just before David dies, that he holds a second, more grand coronation ceremony for Solomon. It's possible that that's what this kind of resulted in, that Solomon's throne is now really established solidly. But whatever it refers to here, it is God keeping his promise to Solomon. God keeping his covenant to David, that Solomon, you're walking with me, and so I'm going to bless you. Jesus walked with the Lord. And so God keeps his covenant with us based on Christ's faithfulness. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we thank you so much for this private conversation that David has with Solomon that we get access to through your word. Lord, we thank you for the advice that David gives to Solomon, the charge. And Lord, we want to heed that charge. We want to be those who, Lord, if we're men, that we become men. We lay down our life for others. We embrace a life of sacrifice. And Lord, for all of us, that we be those who pay close attention to our relationship with you and our hearts remain loyal to you. And then, Lord, just from the concept here of what it means to be a leader, Lord, that we would listen to the advice you give in Scripture because you've called us to be kings and priests unto you. So, Lord, we want to take heed to the charges Every day we read in Scripture how you challenge us and charge us to live in a certain way. We want our lives to be established just like you established Solomon's. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the new covenant we have in Christ that makes that possible. In Jesus' name, amen.